Can you hear me? All right, take your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to pick up right where Gabriel left off last week. He did a great job of talking about the pride and and humility of of, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to see some of those same themes today as we look at all of Daniel 5 today. Um, But as you're turning there, uh, I'm going to tell just a little self-deprecating story. Um, uh, I've been blessed with the, I don't know if it's unique, but the ability to be looking for something and be basically staring right at it and not see it. Um, This comes in tremendously handy when Andy sends, my wife Andy sends me to look for something in the house, in the cupboard, and she's like, it's right there. And I'm looking, I'm looking, I do like six, you know, takeovers of the shelves and like, I don't see it. And she goes, and she's like, it's right there. And uh, in fact, it's happened, I think twice now that she sent me to Aldi grocery store where we get groceries and for just like two or three things. And I'll be looking up and down the aisles and I'm just, I'm not seeing them. And I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. There's been a couple of times I've had to pull out my phone, FaceTime her, flip the camera around, and I'm holding the phone on the shelf. Like she's like, no, to your left, to your left, no, your other left. And, and like people around can hear this. And... So, and eventually I find it and yeah, I'd passed over it like three times. So I had not seen the, the handwriting on the wall, so to speak, um, which is what we're going to be, be looking at today. Um, so, but, you know, we are, we are unavoidably surrounded by power, um, by, by people in power, political power. Um, you know, this fall, we're going to see some people retain their power. Some are going to lose their power. Some are going to... Um, coming to power for the first time, you know, midterms are, are coming up. And um, we live in a, a country that has wielded a tremendous amount of power for a very long time on the world stage. And um, I think I'm picking on any sides here when I say this, but you got people on you know, all sides of the aisle saying, well, the, the problem is those who are in power, we need to get them out of power, get new people in power, and that'll fix everything. And, you know, I'm becoming increasingly convinced the older I get that one of the crucial things for believers in the West, the church in the West, not just us, but the church in the West, is to rightly interpret the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of man, to rightly interpret power. And that's why I'm calling this today, to see if this is going to work, um, calling the sermon today, Rightly Interpreting Power. And again, when I say kingdom, the kingdom of God, we've been singing about it all morning. Um, I didn't tell Craig what songs to pick. I told him what I was talking about generally, but I couldn't have really picked a better group of songs. Um, you know, Jesus brought the kingdom. It broke in through him. The rule and reign broke in through him, through his life, death, resurrection. He made a way for us to come and live in this kingdom, but we are waiting for the king to return and fully consummate this kingdom. And so we want to rightly interpret how it relates to the kingdoms of man. So I'm going to read all of Daniel 5. Um, It's not all going to be up on the screen because it's a long passage, but um, so you can follow along. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father or predecessor, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. 
that the kings, his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king, his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So you have the setting here. It's a massive thousand-person drunken party where this Babylonian pagan ruler is drinking wine with his, with his people, um, but they're not just drinking it. They're drinking it with the vessels taken from the temple, from the Israeli temple. So it's almost like he's sticking a finger, or giving the finger to, to the God of Israel. Like, I'm not only, I've not only defeated you, we're dancing on your grave. We are partying with your very cups that were in your, in your holy temple. So keep going. Verse five, immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were greatly perplexed. <clears throat> so you have this drunken party that's going on and all of a sudden a hand appears on the wall and starts writing. And it's obviously clearly not a human hand because it's just, it appears out of nowhere. And actually, I think it connects us back to Daniel chapter 2, the vision that, that Nebuchadnezzar saw of, remember, he sees the statue made of the different types of, of metal and gold and silver and iron, and then a stone that is not cut by what? Not cut by human hands, comes down and crushes the statue. So there's, I think, a, a connection here going on. You see what is clearly not a human hand writing on this wall. Verse 10. Let me say this too. Um, the words interpretation or interpret are going to appear 10 times in this passage. So I think really a theme, a main theme of this chapter is rightly interpreting, having a right interpretation of, of power. So verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is in, in, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your successor, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your successor, your successor, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems was found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. <clears throat> now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king brought from Judah. I have heard of you 
that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So you see these pagan rulers, these pagan wise men, so to speak, are not able to give the interpretation, but the spirit-filled exile Daniel, the faithful exile is. So we'll keep going. Verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. This is chapter four, what we saw the last two weeks. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. <clears throat> Keep going. Then from his presence, I don't know if that's the right verse. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mine, mine, tekel, parsin. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with a purple chain. With purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night... Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So, the interpretation that Daniel gets... We'll go back. Oh, can you go back for me, Zach? The interpretation that he gets is basically, it, it refers to weights. Um, measurements of weights. And it's almost this idea of like what a merchant would call out in the marketplace because they would kind of determine the value of something by its, its weight. That would kind of determine its worth. And so the, they refer to the weights of a, a mina, a shekel, and a half. 
um, probably half of Amina. And so kind of the, it might, a merchant might shout out something like, reckoned at Amina a shekel and a half. And the point that Daniel kind of draws from this that he, he makes is kind of a play on words relating to Belshazzar is that he has been, he's been appointed, he's been evaluated, and he's being punished is how one scholar puts it. That he's been appointed in the past, he's being weighed or judged, evaluated in the present, and he's being punished in the future. And so that's the general interpretation that, that Daniel gives. But what I want to do now is draw from this, this, this passage three ways that we, as faithful exiles in Babylon, in a pagan society, three ways that we should rightly interpret power. Three ways that we should rightly think about the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of man. I want to move kind of quickly through those, and then we'll end with a story from church history that I think will kind of bring it more to our situation. Okay? So first is this. God's kingdom is not dependent on the kingdoms of man. They are dependent on his. This is all going to be, I think it's a very basic sermon that I'm giving today, but We've ha- we have to get this. This is so crucial. Um, we were on vacation this last week down at Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And um, I haven't actually been to the beach in a few years. And I was out in the ocean with Ellie, who's six. And we were just kind of playing out there. And we would kind of play this game where she would hold on to me. And then the waves would come and I would kind of block the waves. Well, you know, they would kind of knock against us. We weren't out really that deep. But... Waves would come and, I mean, knock me off my feet. And you know, it had been a while since I'd been in the ocean. And it just, I was reminded again at how powerful the ocean is. And I was just thinking like, the God that created this, that can knock me off my feet. I mean, that's power beyond imagining. Um, and his kingdom is not dependent on the kingdoms of man. They are dependent on his. Now, Babylon was surely confident in its own self-sufficiency, right? This is what we saw the last couple of weeks. Confident in its own wealth, its own power, its own influence. But what we see in here is Daniel 5, 21 and 23. He says, the most high God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets it over whom he will. The God in whose hand is your breath. A chilling statement. So I think the point is, even when a prideful pagan ruler is in a place of power and in control, it seems like control, really God is the one who is sovereign over him. God is not dependent on him. He is dependent on God. And think about this. The rulers throughout history, Nero, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Putin, American presidents, Washington, Lincoln, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, all of them, God held their breath and he holds their breath in his hand and he can withdraw it if he wants. And, you know, I, honestly, I feel like for us living in America, this is probably a little hard for, harder for us to grasp, to believe that you know, God's the one that sets up kingdoms, sets you know, those over places of authority because you know, we live in a democratic republic, right? And so we, the people, we're the ones who set the, the rulers 
in place by, by choosing and selecting. And, and don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying like, just, we'll just you know, say, oh, God's sovereign. I'm just going to check out of the whole process and have nothing to do with it. No, we, that is part of being a good citizen. And I'm not saying check out. And God does give people the rulers that they want. It's not always a good thing. I think of the story of when he gave the people of Israel the king that they wanted. And they chose, they said, we want to be like all the other nations. And he said, okay, I'll give you this king who by all appearances looks like a great and powerful ruler. It's not necessarily a sign of God's favor when he gives the people the ruler that they want. Sometimes it's a sign of him just turning them over to their desires. But at the end of the day, for the faithful exile living in Babylon, our interpretation has to be God's kingdom is not dependent on the kingdoms of man. They are dependent on him. And that means that he doesn't need them to spread his kingdom. He uses them. He uses righteous kingdoms. He uses unrighteous kingdoms. But he's not dependent on them. So that's number one. Number two is this. Earthly kings don't get to judge God. God judges them. Earthly kings don't get to judge God. God judges them. It looks like in this story as if the pagan king has won and is basically casting judgment on the God of Israel, right? That's what's happening at the beginning of the story. He's brought in the, the vessels from the Israeli temple. He's having a party, doing as he wishes with it, celebrating other gods than the God of Israel. It looks like he's cast judgment on, on the God of Israel, but Daniel says this in 527, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, evaluated and found wanting. Modern man, really one of the markers of modern man is that he thinks he gets to be the one who judges God, right? T.S. Lewis put it like this one time. He said, you know, in kind of ancient days, it was God was on the throne and man was on, was on the, the, uh, um, like the, the trial seat and God was on the, the throne of the judge's seat. And he says, in modern times, for modern thinkers, that's been reversed. We have put ourselves on the judge's seat and God is the one who's sitting on trial and we're the ones who cast judgment on him. And modern man thinks, well, it's up to me to judge, is he good? Is he just? as if we're the ones who understand that and can figure that out. But that is what modern man thinks, that he can judge God. But not only does God hold the breath of rulers in his hand, he weighs them, he judges them, he evaluates them. And we see here, we see here the negative examples of how God judges rulers. There's three things. This is a, a scholar by the name of uh, Tremper Longman points this out. But there's three things here that we see that he's judging this ruler for. First is pride. He says, you have not humbled your heart. You have lifted yourself up. That's verse 22. By the way, I've just been reading through the, the prophets um, in my Bible reading plan. And it's amazing. The thing that I see keep seeing pop up over and over again is the pride of rulers. God does not like it. He does not like it, and he comes against it. Pride is one. Number two, blasphemy against God. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you've drunken 
with all your wives and concubines from them. And third, idolatry. You have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And it may look like rulers can get away with these things. It seems like that all the time, right? That rulers are getting away with these things. But Proverbs 16, 2 says, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. You know, we, we like to kind of play games like a test and evaluate. Who was, who's your favorite leader? Who's your favorite you know, political leader? And historians will kind of you know, have conversations, evaluate that. Um, but really, at the end of the day, there's going to be one whose judgment of rulers matters. The approval rating of people isn't really going to matter. It's going to be the approval of, of one. And he's going to judge them probably by several different things, but he's going to, I think, at least judge them by these three things. Were they a prideful ruler? Did they lift themselves up? Were they engaged in, in blasphemous behavior against God? Were they more about worshiping idols of, of culture and society than about worshiping the one true God? It's a pretty different rubric right, from what we use to evaluate leaders. And if we're being honest, by that criteria, there's, there's barely going to be a political leader alive today who's going to come out unscathed. And again, don't hear what I'm not saying. It'd be easy to just kind of wash your hands of the whole process and say, well, I'm disgusted with all of them. Um, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying as faithful followers of God in Babylon, let's weigh and judge leaders the way that God does. Let's not be overly impressed with them, but let's also not check out of the process. Let's test and weigh the way that, that God does. Number three is this. The kingdoms of man will be outlasted by the kingdom of God. Daniel says, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And the fall of Babylon in Daniel 5 speaks to, in the Bible, Babylon, yes, it was a historical empire, but really the theme of Babylon plays all throughout scripture to represent all of the kingdoms of man, the empires of man. And so the fall of Babylon in Daniel 5 points ahead to the fall of all earthly kings and kingdoms and empires. And if Babylon did not last forever, Persia did not last forever, Greece did not last forever, Rome did not last forever, all earthly empires and kings and kingdoms will not last forever. They'll one day, they'll one day come to an end. So that's all kind of a little bit heavy, but I think, that's, I think that's what the passage is saying, rightly interpreting power. But so how do we, as the faithful exiles, the faithful followers in the midst of all this, how then shall we live? And I think we see the example given of Daniel in this passage. It's a couple things, but I think they're really describing the same thing. First is, I love how Daniel is described in this passage by pagan people who don't know God. They say, there's this one called Daniel and whom is the spirit of the gods, because they don't really know how to identify him. We would say, we would know that it's the Holy Spirit that he has in him. But that's how he's recognized. The, one, the thing that distinguishes him 
is the spirit that dwells inside of him. And I would just want to say fullness. I know it's part of our, I don't know, logo, slogan, whatever. You know, we're people of the word, people of the spirit. But let's not just have that be just our slogan. We have to be, have to be people of the spirit. People who are sensitive, listening for the spirit. People who are seeking to walk in the spirit. People who want to be led by the spirit. I don't think we're going to, we're not going to make it in Babylon if we do not have the spirit of God. We have to have the spirit of God. And we must be people of wisdom who fear the Lord. We see that in Daniel clearly here that he's the man of wisdom who can rightly interpret the times, rightly interpret power. I think really though, these are two ways of saying the same thing. People of the spirit are people of wisdom who fear God. People who fear God and not man, they're people who have the Holy Spirit. And I think if we have the spirit, we're not gonna be allured and seduced by the pull and the draw of power, of earthly power and earthly kings and kingdoms. Let's be people of the spirit. Now, I wanna look at an example from church history of a time where an, an empire, an earthly empire, was crumbling and coming to an end, and it was really not seen as a good thing for the people of God. It was actually seen as a bad thing for the people of God. Because, you know, honestly, realistically, for the, those in Babylon, the exiles, they were probably not that sad that Babylon was going to come to an end, right? Because Babylon wasn't exactly the greatest place. But I'm talking about in 410 AD when Rome, when the Roman Empire was, was sacked by the Goth army. They invaded and for three days they brutalized the city of Rome and just <clears throat> desecrated the Roman Empire. But it was actually, the, the damage and destruction was more than just physical. It was psychological, as, as scholars have, have pointed out. Um, because Rome at the time was really seen as the keeper of the civilized world. It was like the stability, the structure of peace in the, the what well, considered the civilized world at the time. And one historian puts it like this. Um, Peter Brown, he says, Rome symbolized the security of the whole civilized way of life. To an educated man, the history of the known world culminated quite naturally in the Roman Empire. Just as to a 19th century man, the history of civilization culminated in the supremacy of Europe. And I would add, like for a 20 or 21st century man, culminated in the U.S. The sack of Rome by the Goths, then, was an ominous reminder of the fact that even the most valuable societies might die. <clears throat> and the fall of Rome was actually very concerning for many of the Christians who were living in that area. And you might think, well, that's weird. I thought Rome wasn't Rome against the Christians. Well, yes, it was for a while. They did persecute them for a while, but all that changed when an emperor by the name of Constantine came to power and he had this, some kind of experience where he saw a cross and we're not really sure what exactly happened, but he basically took Christianity as his religion, whether or not it was genuine or not, I'm not sure, but he took it and he made Christianity the, the religion of the empire. And so now suddenly the state, the power of the state is not against the church. Now the power of the state is on the side of the church. And so for some Christians, they thought, this is, 
this is the high point in salvation history. Now we have power behind us, and now we can really move forward and, 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 and you know, spread the kingdom. And so when Rome starts crumbling and gets destroyed, it's very concerning for the believers. And one Christian, a guy by the name of Jerome, he asks, I think, a profound question that I think was on the lips of many. He says, he said, where is salvation if Rome perishes? And I'm, I'm going to confess, I've, I have thought things like this in our present day regarding not Rome, but regarding our country. And my guess is, I'm pretty sure I, that other believers have thought similar things as well. In fact, I've heard more or less this implied in the way that some talk. The question's like, where is salvation if the U.S. perishes? Where is the church if the U.S. perishes? Where is the kingdom of God if the U.S. perishes? And I think it's probably obvious, but I think it still needs to be said, and I'm going to say it with all humility, that the U.S. is not the kingdom of God. I'm very thankful for our country, but it is not the kingdom of God. It is a nation that operates under the authority of the kingdom of God, and God has used it and can use it, but it is not simultaneous to the kingdom of God like all the other nations. It is dependent on him. He is not dependent on it. And in the midst of this, Rome falling and all this unrest, there's a guy, a bishop, a church leader by the name of Augustine. And he writes this very long book, um, that maybe some of you have had to read in high school, parts of it, known as the City of God. And the City of God was really his, his language that he used to talk about the kingdom of God. Um, it, he gets that imagery from the Bible, but instead of saying kingdom of God, he does say kingdom, but um, he also says city of God. And he contrasts the city of God with the cities, the city of man. And it's beautiful. And he's writing, it's a very long book. He's I've only read parts of it. He's writing for different reasons. But part of his purpose in writing the city of God is to encourage the believers and to strengthen the concerned, worried believers who are like, what is going to happen now that, that Rome has crumbled around us? And here's what he, part of what he writes to encourage these Christians. Before I, before I put it up here, though, um, I think it's a great quote, but I'm, I was a little concerned. I was thinking about putting this up here. Like, here's what I don't want you to hear, to come away from when you see this. Um, I don't want you to, to hear him saying like, well, you know, God's in control. So just, you know, we should just kind of take a hands-off perspective, just a real passive approach and just kind of, you know, sirrah, sirrah, just let things go. Um, that's absolutely, absolutely not what he's saying. He's actually encouraging um, engagement for the people of God. Just he's lifting their view to a higher kingdom than the kingdoms of earth. And so here's what Augustine writes to worried believers. He says, what are you scared about? Just because earthly kingdoms perish? That's the reason a heavenly one's been promised to you, that you won't perish with the earthly. Now this collapse was foretold and foretold quite expressly. We cannot deny after all what's been foretold. Your Lord, the one you're waiting for has said to you, 
Nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Earthly kingdoms go through changes, but there will be one coming of whom it is said, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Very similar to language in Daniel. Therefore, brothers and sisters, don't get discouraged. An end shall come to all the kingdoms of the earth. If now be the end, God sees it. Maybe by chance it's not here yet. Whether it's our weakness or pity or misery, let's hope it's not here yet. Even so, won't it come sometime? Fix your hope in God. Yearn for eternal things. Be on the lookout for eternal things. You are Christians, brothers and sisters. We are Christians. So fullness. Let's be people who rightly interpret power, who rightly interpret the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of man. I'm gonna ask Gabriel to come up. He's gonna lead us in a confession and the team's gonna come up and, and lead us in a, a, a last worship song. But let me, let me pray for us as they come. Dear Father God, our King, we thank you. We thank you that you are the one who rules and reigns. You are seated on a throne and none can stand against you. We thank you, God, that you are not just a king who rules from a distance, but you have given us your spirit. And that is the way that we can be connected to you. That is the way that we live in your kingdom is by your spirit. And I ask, Father, that we at fullness would be a people of the Holy Spirit that we would continually be hungry for your spirit, God, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. God, the, king that, the, the spirit that sees rightly kings and kingdoms, that interprets power rightly. God, that fixes our hope on eternal things. Would you come and rest on us, Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.